for me, again, um, being a certified minority-owned or certified women-owned, certified vet-owned, certified um, whatever you can do, if you have that opportunity to do it, I'd grab it. Uh, All right. Hey, everybody. This is Devin Miller here, and uh, welcome to another uh, episode of The Inventive Journey. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Devin Miller. I am a patent and trademark attorney that focuses on helping startups and small businesses. Also, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so we we had the Inventive Journey to to create a, a great uh, community for everybody that listens and wants to be or is in startups and small businesses. Um, today we have a, a, a fun guest on today, Anita. Um, Anita has a great story to tell. So hi, Anita. Um, she is everything from went to Berkeley to AT&T to getting undergraduates to working at Bell Labs to now uh, working with her, start, her husband for the the third startup, which is that, that that's accomplished in and of itself. I think if I were to tell my wife that she wants to be part of my startup, she would say, you're on, I, I'll support you, but you're on your own. I don't want to do a startup. So that's quite the accomplishment of yourself. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Devin. Thank you for hosting me. But I got to tell you, you know, Bob and I have been married 33 years. We met at UC Berkeley at students in the 1980s. We were both interning at Bank of America in their telecommunications department. I was coding. He was working on home banking and installing ATM machines back then. So 33 years, three companies, two kids. Come on. That's a pretty good track record. You, that, you that is a that. great track record. So uh, congratulations <laughs> to you. <laughs> that, that in and of itself, 33 years of marriage is awesome. Two kids is awesome. Multiple startups is great. So uh, it'll make for a great journey. So why don't you take us back a little bit? You kind of introduced you, you and your husband met, you know, back when you were uh, working or working at the same uh, employer, uh, but maybe take us back to your journey of kind of when things started. Absolutely. Well, I got to say for me, I had the privilege. I'm here in the San Francisco Bay area. I had the privilege of attending UC Berkeley starting at age 15 way back in 1978 for for those of you who are looking at your uh you know calendars and trying to figure out how old i am i'm 57 so i had the privilege of going to berkeley back then and i discovered okay. so i'm already jumping in because that's an accomplishment so 15 if, if it was last i checked or as i remember <laughs> i didn't graduate till 18 and that was just because i was lucky to grad. no I, I did fine but uh so how did you get into berkeley at 15 where you did you apply early are you a genius or how did that happen I am none of those things. They have uh, programs that targeted folks uh, like me, men, women of uh, all ages, colors, genders. We had an opportunity to start taking classes initially over the summers, then on weekends, and then eventually concurrently while we were still in high school. It's a program uh, that no longer exists, and I'm excited that it exposed me into economics at an early age. It exposed me to Boolean algebra at an early age and got me really excited about technology. I ended up on a path because, again, being privileged to be at Berkeley and also being able to work, I ended up starting at AT AT&T in their engineering department at age 17 when I did get that high school diploma and worked there in the summers until I transitioned to the Bank of America. So I've always been fortunate to be able to take advantage of just awesome opportunities and organizations finding me, honestly, to expose me to technology early on. But again, I'm sitting here in Silicon Valley. So what else would we expect than for colleges like Berkeley to come out and find folks like me and say, hey, we want you to be an engineer. Let's start exposing you to what you need to do to be successful in that regard. And I loved it. I embraced it. Um, I ran out and spent the next X decades working in the 
technology space because it's my passion and it's how we can change the world. So I'm excited in this moment to be able to start at, at Berkeley, um, to be able to finish my majors in economics and economics in the black community. I finished my MBA. I finished working through school as a telecom engineer and went right into AT&T's executive training program. So I did not work for Bell Labs, Devin. What I did do is I was working with them to build the systems infrastructure so they could provision broadband. Okay. So for those of us older folks back in the late 80s, it was one phone and one number. I worked with Bell Labs to build the infrastructure so the phone companies around our nation could track multiple devices, introduce data, um, get the first implementations of ISDN, what we would call broadband, into places like City of Fresno and um, JPL Labs down in Southern California. So having built that large infrastructure, AT&T transitioned me eventually into large strategic and financial roles. Mm. So the privilege of um, defending the first markets in which they face competition. And my response to that was, hey, let's optimize and then let's exit the business as a cash cow. So the company I worked for was actually called Pacific Bell, and we sold it to a company called SBC, now known as AT&T. So I started in a technical excuse me, technical field, hmm. in the strategy and finance, left AT&T and went to companies like um, Levi Strauss. I uh, was at UC Berkeley. I was at an IDG company, and I was finally at a company called Quantum. Many of you may know it as Seagate. It is a, um, uh, it is a hardware manufacturer of memory. Uh, I was a director there overseeing a $3.5 billion business in the year 2000. When my engineering husband's company was acquired for three and a quarter billion dollars, so I quit my job. And the reason I did I, it- I would do that too. If I even got close to that kind of an exit, I'd be quitting my job. Only I wouldn't have gone into another startup. I would have just said, hey, I'm taking a break for a year or two years. Go and see the world or something enjoyable. I took a break. Okay. I took a nice break. That happened in the year 2000. I founded it in 2014. But here, here's what, if that company- had a program like Oniva in which they offered FBI background check, trusted care available to me. Maybe they would have had a professional woman stay in the organization. Absolutely. I was the most senior African-American in that company. Um, similarly in places like Levi Strauss, where I was in a, in a particular role as a woman, as a person of color, but let's ignore those things and focus on the fact that I was an excellent contributor and leader and made their business better. And that's why my career grew. So, one of the reasons we introduced Oniva Cone Search Care is just that. Had they made that available, I may have kept that job. I love my job. I love contributing. I love being a parent. Mm. For those of you not familiar with the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm sitting here in Oakland in the town in which I live where my then son and now two children and my mother are live near here or in the city. We work in Silicon Valley. Forget distance, time. With traffic, it's a two-hour commute. So when you worry as a parent, and now as a child with an 85-year-old blind mom that I also care for in her home, mm. that ability to make sure that trusted care is there, if it's not me, I'm always first. But I have to be able to work, and I have to be able to take care of my family. And until I can have those needs met, I simply couldn't be my best, most authentic self and be my most productive self. So that's why we built Oniva Concierge Care, because I'm not the only person. Forget that I'm a woman. There are men who provide care as well. Sure. But we all know 10,000 baby boomers are retiring every single day. We all know 
that because of the wonderful uh, accomplishments of, of medical technology, we're seeing people who are able to live years longer than they may have hoped. We're able to see the most amazing people survive and thrive. I have two adult autistic nieces and nephews, 44 and 46 years old. Um, one is extremely autistic and needs care even for simple functions such as going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Yet I function that we have them here at home now because their facilities are closed all day. We are still excited that we have access to care because we work with essential service providers who meet the needs of the requirements of the state of California. That's how we're able to work. We are regulated by the Department of Social Services and we ensure we comply with all those regulations. We're excited and and pleased that those folks can continue to be in the home. That's how I'm able to be here with you right now. Somebody's with my blind 85-year-old mom so that I can be in the office and take the time to talk with you. That's a, that's a great service, and I think that's a, a great uh, great thing to focus on. So that's awesome that you went from husband's, or husband's company, got acquired, had a good exit, now to um, looking to how to serve and to help others. I'm going to back up just a little because we almost jumped to the end, and we, we missed part of the middle, which is always the interesting part. So that was your – was that – now that – were you – because you said you worked with your husband for three startups – so this one, I, I'm assuming the third startup is the one you guys are at now. Is that right? This is number three. This is number three. So what were the other two startups you worked with your husband? And then we'll jump to the end, which is also fun to talk about. What were the other two startups you worked with your husband? Oh, we're going way back for you, Devin. The first one, in 1988, we finished, uh, uh, we did a PC fax card business plan. So we actually contemplated going into the hardware market. Um, some of you may not know what a fax is, F-A-X. But if you work with the government and, you, and you're an IP attorney, you're working with the government, you got one of those old machines and you plug yeah, it no, in. It, I, you know, really, that's the only time I've ever used a fax in my career is I'll call an examiner and say, okay, I can either email us to you or would you like a fax? And if there's the older examiner, say, oh, can you please fax it to me? I'm like, I got to go figure out how to use a fax again, but I have used a fax. Well, can you say we had a PC fax card? Would it work directly from that device back in 1988? Um, we actually chose not to execute that one and shocked a few folks, but we didn't. Um, Bob went the startup route and I went to AT&T, the big company route. Second company we started back in 1999 was called What's Next. And I love that name and should have sold it because it made, would have made more money from it than from the company. Um, I learned some really great lessons with that failure. Um, and I, I shouldn't even call it a failure because I learned such a great lesson. Uh, it was meant to be a site kind of like career builder place you can go and you can find out about jobs and salaries or a glass door. Um, You know, as we entered the year 2000, again, folks of my age may remember that we had something called an internet bust. Dot-com bubble, yep. Dot-com bubble. But not only did we have a dot-com bubble, imagine Anita and Bob started a business working with people to help them initially, writing their resumes and get them into a monster kind of thing. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have money. They loved our work products but they didn't pay us. So one of the biggest lessons I learned is that the third business we started would have customers who could afford to pay us. <laughs> that is always an important thing. As much as you can have the best company, but if you don't have paid clients, it doesn't, it doesn't tend to matter. I'm just, hey, I'm just saying, you know, forget the 10 years at Berkeley, forget the MBA out of Haas. It took starting a business to realize Hey, I got great customers who love what I do, but they aren't sending the checks at the end of the transaction. So, you know, 
We all learn things. You know, even here at our third company, Oniva, we've pivoted several times, right? I mean, so, and again, I describe what's next as a failure. Absolutely not. We learned so much and it helped inform us for this third opportunity that we have. And we never would have made it here, not for that. So in this moment, you know, again, learnings along the way, you know, we started out with a consumer platform offering this care, you know, FBI background track, trusted care by compliant workers. We were in the consumer space. We were growing. It was great. But then we had, uh, we won a competition called Best Startup Silicon Valley mm. in 2015. And we had companies like Finland and Japan and a company called Intel come to us and say, build an enterprise grade GDPR compliant version of that platform or privacy secure platform. And we'll award you a contract. We thought that was exciting. And we stopped providing services to consumers. Um, It's hard to back up, because we almost jumped. So, Aniva, you guys started out as basically kind of, and correct me where I'm wrong, um, being able to help people in home care. So if you have either kids or elderly people, somebody that has needs that you want to take care of while the the parents or other people are out working and and doing doing an income. Initially, I think you said started as more of a consumer-facing thing where people could come to you directly and look for hiring on care, hiring on helpers or hiring on, you know, whatever they're in need of. And then you're talking about, then you pivoted more to almost a, a B2B to C or an enterprise version for companies to provide that to their employees. Is that about right? That is absolutely about right. You should be on this side of the camera. <laughs> you absolutely got it. That was a huge pivot. And the reason that's a huge pivot is because those consumers were paying revenue. And once you say we're going to make a decision to pivot, that means you walk away from that week over week revenue growth that helped you win that competition called Best Startup Silicon Valley. Because there's no way you say, hey, I'm going to grow and build 100,000, a million consumers and then smooth them all over. We, we know that's not how technology works if you want to deliver an exceptional service. The other thing that we learned is because, again, we, we comply with all laws and regulation, including uh, background check in California is a living background check. It's a 1987 regulation called Trust Line. And can you imagine my shock in 2013 to learn that no other marketplaces chose to comply with that 1987 requirement? And it's a living FBI background check. That means if the caregiver commits a crime, uh, DUI, elder abuse, check fraud, they're off my platform and not in your home. We chose to comply with that requirement when no other marketplace had. And that sort of struck us as a, a little bit odd. We also have laws here in California that center around our workers and what's a gig worker and how we comply. At Oniva, because we are so focused on ensuring our workers comply so that we take on that risk so that the technology around uh, needing to know if a caregiver needs to have a massage insurance to give you a massage, I don't want you to have all that's going to come up here in your smartphone. You know, I didn't even know there was such a thing as massage insurance. So that's, I learned stuff to do right there. So, <laughs> but that's just it. It's our job to make sure you only are treated by folks who meet the laws mm-hmm. in your state, in your region, in your community. And so, so far to do that. So did you, was that part of the original platform when you're doing it to consumer facing or is that part of the pivot when you went to the um, more of the um, concierge for businesses that that's what they required or that's what took to get in just was, wasn't quite clear on that timing. Um, that's what we were doing. Um, what we needed to do was to get to enterprise grade security standards, GDPR. Um, mm-hmm. But 
Absolutely, it's what we were doing, and it was realizing uh, our friends at Microsoft, um, who we've been working with since December 10th, 2014, specifically mm-hmm. Fred Till, the general manager of benefits, you know, having him come in and weigh in and say, you've got something pretty awesome here, and then having the head of benefits at Intel saying, I want you to build an enterprise-grade version, then handing us requirements to build the system, and then taking them back to Fred at Microsoft to say, okay, let's build it. And then let's pilot it on 3,000 Microsoft employees in 2017 and get their feedback, which they gave us. And we learned so much. Uh, We spent 2018 and early 2019 rebuilding all the technology because things like native apps didn't exist as they had in 2014. And technology had evolved, GDPR and other security requirements had come along. So it was the right thing to do uh, again at the end of 2018 after we worked with those 3,000 Microsoft employees to shut down and build the right set of tech that meets the needs of the consumers, whether that's you, the employee customer, Devin, the mm. caregiver who would use the Oneva Pro app, or the HR um, leader like Fred Till at Microsoft who would use the, his laptop to see which services are, are being used, anonymized employee data, recording data. He'd be able to send us his eligibility file so we would know which Microsoft employees, um, when they do so, get a subsidy. For example, if you are a director or you receive stock options at some companies at Microsoft, you don't get subsidized care or subsidized medical, but others will. You know, Microsoft, uh, Fred Thiel shared with me, Microsoft owns a company called LinkedIn that some of us have heard of, that many of us know Microsoft. At least a few people. A few, but did you know LinkedIn employees get 2000 a year to spend on care and gym membership? I did not know that. That's so cool. as Fred Till thinks about his 130,000 Microsoft employees, as well as his new LinkedIn employees, hmm. you got to think about how to bring some parity. So what better way to do that than with an enterprise-grade GDPR-compliant, certified minority-owned technology platform that he helped build since 2014? So we're, we're just... We're pretty excited to be able to go back to, you know, Fred, who's with us always, um, our team at Microsoft, their team at Oracle. We're the only company who's completed Oracle's protege program as a minority supplier. Um, Because we are certified as minority owned by the Western Region Minority Supplier Diversity Council. That's That's a mouthful right there. WRMSDC. Uh, That's how we gain access into awesome companies like Microsoft. And it's because of that. Fernando Hernandez, who is their director of diversity, supplier diversity at Microsoft, he oversees about $4 billion in spending with minority, women-owned, vet-owned, LGBTQT-owned companies like Oneva. Hmm. He's a senior advisor at Oneva and has been since 2015. So we are so blown. Oh, I was going to say, no, go ahead. So I was going to say, say Oh, go ahead. Yep. I was going to say, we're blessed. He, he made all of our sales introductions into, into uh, some awesome company. So we've got a great pipeline for deferring to you, sir. Oh, no, I just, gonna say, so it sounds like the pivot, it was obviously a good, a good move, been successful, was a great idea, but how did you, cause I mean, so I'll, I'll, I'll set it up. I was, so I, I, I like to read books and particularly, usually if I have, well, I like to read books. I wish I had a lot more time to read books. But when I do have time to read books, I usually end up, and my wife always makes me, it's like, you always like to do business and that. And then when you read books, you read business books. And I'm like, well, it's just what I enjoy. So, but I like to read business books. One of the recent books I read was um, That Will Never Work. And it's kind of about um, Netflix and how they started up and how they got in. And 
one of the, the founders, Mark Randolph, was the guy that originally was CEO, and you always hear Hastings, which is now the guy that's always in the news and that. Randolph was the one that originally had the idea, and he, you know, hit, uh, Hastings told him, hey, that will never work because he was pitching ideas back off. But they started out, if you, now, I'll, now I'll date myself, not quite as far back, but they started out much more in DVDs, right? So their original company was all in DVDs and sending DVDs in the mail, and then they ended up making a pivot to where most people know Netflix today is streaming, streaming. but they almost had to make that decision. And then part of it was, is they saw Amazon was going to eventually erode into what was uh, the DVD and mailing, but they could probably keep a better market in reoccurring revenue with, um, with uh, streaming as opposed to DVDs, but they almost shut down. They, they, their, most of their income was all from the DVDs at the time. They basically made the decision, hey, we're going to go all in on the streaming. They, a lot, they didn't shut it all the way down, but they really moved their focus to the what would be the streaming, and it was a big jump. So how did you kind of along those lines when you're going from consumer-based or consumer-directly going to B2B, what was that transition, or how did you make that decision? Boy, there's a lot in that, man. There, there are, there's so many factors that come into a decision of that magnitude. And I to say something that may be a little controversial, may get me in a little bit of trouble here. Okay, but I'm going to speak as an expert who has a patent for, for creating trust and safety in the in-home care market, right? And, and being a CEO for six years and chairman of the board. I am so grateful, not only that I had the privilege of the academic experience, which taught me things like my four P's and my three C's, product price promotion in a placement or my channel distribution, customer cost competition. I had this great academic start. Then I had the privilege of learning operational infrastructure from a company like AT&T, B of A, Wells Fargo, I spent time in as an engineer, seeing how they operate and how they leverage systems into decision-making to evolve from that into a strategy and financial role. Again, at some of the you know biggest brands that we may have heard of across industries like Levi's, et cetera, where I was leading planning and finance across up to eight companies, you know, mm-hmm. in different places. I just feel really blessed to have a lot of skills and a lot of exposure to a lot of different things because you really have to see how they all touch, right? They, everything exists together, your operations and your technology and your marketing and your everything comes together and touches. And I know just a little bit of enough about all those to be dangerous. The other thing I have that's really helpful in these moments is you ask, I have an amazing team of advisors who each have to bring more than money mm. to be an advisor and an investor in my company. So I've talked about Fernando as, as an example. He, he's, his responsibility helped me build my enterprise sales pipeline. And he has since 2015 helped me fundraise. And mm. he so if you go out and, and you were to Google me, you'd see Fernando and I doing investor interviews. Um, we have folks like Chris Yeh, author of Blitzscaling, uh, along with a guy by the name of Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, um, who's a, a repeat investor and my go-to guy. Um, he, you know, Blitzscaling. So we had the, the father of how do you grow really quickly and rapidly while we were making these tough decisions and building the company. So- so wait, were they on the board or your advisors when you were still doing the B2C or direct to customers? And did you go to them or did they join after? I just trying to get the idea. I mean, that's great name or, you know, a lot of great advisors and just trying to yeah. think if I could go ask them, Hey, what should I do? That would be some great advice. So did they help you to make the decision or were they on or did they come on after? They came on as the decision were being made. They loved it. Okay. And especially when the decision comes to you again, head of Intel at the time, Ogden says, hey, go build this for me and mm-hmm. your certification. And then they have the Fred Till who 
general manager benefits at Microsoft who had left Intel as their head of benefits to go to Microsoft. You got some pretty important players in the market who understand the benefit space who are validating your idea. Uh, I mentioned that we also had representatives from universities in Finland, as well as representatives from Japan, Germany, and a, a number of other countries at that point approach us. So at that point, we had a significant amount of what I would call external push to make the pivot. What was challenging about it, again, you turn off revenue. You walk into the long, deadly desert of no money, and you generally don't attract a lot of investors at that point. Usually investors like companies that make money. It's crazy. There you go. So imagine we finish a pilot with Microsoft in 2017 where we're making money. They spent $700 per month on average with no subsidy. Mm. Um, they requested, 40% requested three or more services and 3% signed up on day one. You know, so we thought about, gee, those 70,000 employees in Seattle, if 3% sign up on day one, you know, we had to look at our technology and we had to admit, um, and, and let's face it, we had other folks to look at like Lyft and Uber who never make money. You yeah. know, we make money and we make money. We go cash flow positive at 500 or so customers in a region. I mean, and we can drop right now, whether I'm in Dublin, Ireland or in Seattle or in, mm. in uh, Salt Lake City. Um, and we have one customer in Salt Lake City who'd love to see us there when potential. So, um, you know, we can make our technology available anywhere. Uh, within about 90 days, and in part because we have an amazing relationship with the Church of Latter-day Saints, and they help us find awesome, amazing caregivers through their existing infrastructure. So we feel pretty blessed since 2014 to work with amazing partners, whether it's the enterprises with Microsoft or Intel or Oracle or a fruit company in Cupertino, as mm. well as with some amazing folks in the caregiving space in the LDS community, as well as Community colleges here in uh, California are awesome places. We have about 100 community colleges here that are focused on creating home health aid workers. So we have always targeted and built relationships with those entities because we want to serve their needs and we want to help them succeed and be successful. So we're excited, whether it's the customer, Microsoft employee customer, the caregiver, or the enterprise, we've been out in market with them, listening to them. And that's in part what took us so long, because those are three different sets of technologies that had to be built and then be integrated. And as startup founders, many of us are given the bad advice, we just get a crappy enough product out into the market. I think that's depending on your product, on your market, that can work. But when your customer is a Microsoft employee, um, mm. and we're arguably one of the best technologists in the world, it's not in my best interest to go in with a crappy product. So, and that's, you'll, you'll, you'll hit on that. And I, I always, I always look at, it always drives me nuts because I hear it all the time. And I, I did MBA school as well. You'll hear minimal yeah. viable product. And that term always is like, it's kind of like that. It's always like, well, put out the crappiest product that you think somebody will buy. And I always liked it more. Why don't we go the maximal viable product? Look at what we can do within our resources and constraints and put out the best product we can rather than the worst. So I, I, I completely agree on that one. Absolutely. 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 And based on what people are willing to pay, even though I say we shut down, you know, we opened back up in 2019 on a very small scale and started taking in customers. Every iteration of, of our platform that's out there, I have paid customers on it in small number because I got to make sure that it's meeting somebody's needs. The best way to get real feedback is to check my account at the end of the month. And that's how we determine if we're doing something right out there in the market. 
And now that we're in a place where we are just growing, we've onboarded three companies. Um, we did companies two and three today. Um, since March, we're excited to be able to grow. And we're excited that that growth comes in part through a relationship with a company called Acrisure, the ninth largest insurance provider here in the U.S. We mm. signed their contract with them in February. While they have over 1,300 brokers who go out and sell their services to their different, their benefits to different enterprises nationally. We started here with about 102 sales reps um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, the largest footprint you can imagine, nine Bay Area counties, plus to four more all the way into the uh, Sacramento foothills. The reason being, that's where Oracle is. And when the head of benefits at Oracle says, I need to see you with a presence in my region, that's where you put it. So that's, that's our footprint, right? Microsoft, Oracle, fruit companies. We, we managed to meet the needs of a, a footprint of, of some awesome folks we've been collaborating with for some time that we're excited to expose to the technology. So you know, it's quite a ride. It's been crazy. Um, we've had successes. We've had failures. There's not been a period where we haven't gone, oh, no, this thing's going to die. We've resuscitated this, this company more times. I mean, for those of you, on, if you're a Space Jams fan, do you remember when the team was all banged up on the sideline and even Tweety Pie, you know? <laughs> right. That's a, I mean, that's a classic. That's a great movie. Well, that that's our experience. I and mean, for every founder, I, you know. I, 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 I think you're right. I think for almost every founder, everybody always feels like a failure, usually multiple times. And no matter how many highs, you, you always think, okay, now we're on an upward trajectory and it'll be great. And then you'll hit a bump and you're like, oh no, we failed again. So I, I completely get that. Well, we could dive in and talk for, I'm sure, an hour and more. And I always get to the ends of the podcast and I wish I had tons more time because oh. there's always so many things more to talk about. Um, but with that, I'm going to or start to wrap it up, but I always like to ask two questions um, at, at the end of the podcast. Um, so we'll, we'll end with those and then maybe some, another time we'll have to have you on and dive into a whole bunch more of the fun things. Um, but the first question is, um, what was the worst business decision you ever made? Well, I, I shared one already was to start a business with folks who didn't pay me, right? As I started a business, um, left my job, invested a lot of money to build, a, you know, a business to help people connect to employers at a horrible time. I couldn't control the dot-com explosion, um, but I probably could have given a little bit more thought about ability to pay yeah. you know, at that moment. Just, you know, but, but what I learned to do with business two from that failure, I tested it <laughs> before I put out a lot of money. You know, when we started Oniva, we just had a, a screen face. We didn't have any back end. We launched in a park here in Oakland on a Saturday. Um, with a guy doing tricks from East Bay Regional Parks, and he brought out some animals and things. But I had a woman spend two hours with me explaining to me why she was willing to pay for care, why it was so important, and why she needed it, and what her budget was. Two hours, one woman. I got immediate validation around pricing and ability to pay that holds to this day. Um, from that woman and her passion is something I certainly didn't see from those folks who love the resumes we were writing but not paying us for so you know we took it and we adapted it and and learned to test for revenue before we put out a lot of cash Hmm. and before we got too far in the pipeline so you've seen us do that repeatedly over and over again you heard me talk about generating the six figures in revenue while we've been in development 
I always got to get that real world market feedback because I cannot afford to make that mistake now that I've raised $2.7 million and, and I'm scaling, you know, across the, the state of California and hopefully other places. Now's not the time to introduce that kind of risk. So I took that horrible, horrible lesson and applied it, I hope you can hear, in many different ways, not just where I build my business, who do I get, who's my customer, where do I look for for my revenue, but also what are the things that I think about and some of those early steps I put into place so that I can ensure success before an extensive cash outlay. So there are lots of different things to, to learn um, from that kind of lesson. So, yeah, so, um, so if I were to summarize all that, the biggest mistake was don't try and sell product to customers that can't pay. Is that a fair summary? That's a fair summary. Okay. Fair now I'm going to jump to my second question or my last question, which okay. is now if you're looking for people that want to get in startups, want to get in small businesses or just starting out, what would be your number one piece of advice you'd give them? Oh my gosh. For me, again, um, being a certified minority owned or certified women owned, certified vet owned, certified um, whatever you can do, if you have that opportunity to do it, I'd grab it. Uh, I, I would love to tell you that I was able to get and have these awesome relationships with some great brands. You can imagine launching with a brand called Microsoft as a customer is a great position to start from. And they ha haven't had them build that. You know, fortunately, everybody doesn't have access to that. But a lot of folks sure do. Um, inclusivity these days covers lots of different people. Um, what it gives you, it gives you access. It got me access to Microsoft and uh, Microsoft took me into a, a group called tech underscore scale underscores that line on the bottom of the, you know, the page. Um, uh, it was chaired by Nino Campos at Oracle and Alex Alvarez at Apple and its members are the 32 largest tech companies in the U.S. Hmm. So by virtue of being certified, it gave me access since 2015 to start selling into some pretty awesome brands and brand names. So for those of you who have that opportunity to get that, uh, I say go out and get it. Um, and you would be amazed at how that might help you grow your business on a go-forward basis in terms of access to potential customers. In our case, we're also a Microsoft Fast Track startup company. I get, uh, I think I got $120,000 in free Azure credits. Um, as we scale uh, Microsoft engineers to tackle and tap my technology platform and verify it works as build, all those benefits can come to companies. Um, if you're certified, you don't have to be certified to be a Microsoft startup company and reach out to me and happy to tell you more about that. All right. Well, I will let them, if people want to know more about that, that's a great reason for them to reach out. So awesome. great, great to, or Great lessons learned from the failure and great advice for those that are going to do startups and small businesses. So both are both good answers to the questions I always ask. So now with that, um, I always want to end with um, how do people reach out to you? So if they want to, whether they're a business and wanting to um, connect up with you and use your service or they're wanting to get involved or they're wanting to be a caregiver or whatever, what's the best way to reach out to you? I am Anita at Oniva.com, A-N-I-T-A at Oniva, O-N-E-V-A.com. Please find me. Uh, you can find our website, Oniva.com. Uh, there's a telephone on it. You can always dial. You can find me by directory, 800-971-3053. Um, we are always looking for all that you described, always looking for new investors in this moment, particularly as we contemplate that scale always looking for new enterprises who want to be a part of Oniva Concierge Care 
especially in the moment of coronavirus, as we think about returning to work for our employees and what level of trust and safety they need. Uh, I can tell you we are talking to some large companies who are looking at things like having employees return in shifts. Um, some companies having employees return Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturdays, you know, schedules, different eight-hour shifts. So we're excited that we are flexible enough in our technology design and workers who have been decimated by coronavirus are increasingly available. Um, some of the most talented teachers, bus drivers, and others who would otherwise be working in different roles right now are unable to do so are now available to help bring care to employees and customers where those employees live. And that's what excites me, creating living rate job opportunities in those communities where your employees live. And to do that in collaboration with the Church, uh, the, the church of Latter-day Saints and well as others, and to be able to bring such amazing communities together, we just want to connect people to bring care together, make sure they get a living wage, make a tiny bit of profit for us, um, and go forward. So thank you for the opportunity, Devin, to be here today. I am excited to be an inventor. I, I, if you let me come back, I'll share my second patent on the AI robot video director. All those beautiful caregiver videos have to get made and without human intervention. Uh, as mentioned, we are not your grandfather's Oldsmobile. We are not Lyft. We are not Uber. We're focused on cash flow, profitability, and ease and customer use and scaling quickly. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today and share my story and to share my product. I hope I get to see you in person in Utah when we take on customers. And thank right, you so much. Well, thank uh, you. And I appreciate that. And I look forward to when you guys uh, establish a headquarters out in Utah that, uh, that we'll have to meet up then, or at least live meet up then. So that will be great. So Thank uh, you, sir. And you're, you're an Eagle Scout, so you, you have to be honest. <laughs> I should be honest. And I always try to be. Anyway, so that's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, for those of you that are in the podcast, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, feel free to check us out at the, uh, inventivejourney.com. We'd love to hear your story and your journey. And uh, for those of you that are uh, needing help as you're getting going with your startups and small businesses, feel free to go to uh, milleripl.com uh, for any uh, patents or trademark needs. <laughs> so thank you. Great, great. Call him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for the Have a great day. Well, thanks for coming on. It was fun to have you. And uh, we'll have to check back in in the, in the future and see how the journey's going. You got it. So you as well. Have a great day. Thank you. Be blessed. Bye, everybody. Thank you.